The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Ephesians in chapter 1, and we're going to read the first uh, 12 verses together. Here again is the reading of God's Word, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray again, shall we? Loving Father, again, we come before you with our word of God open before us. And Father, it is our plea this morning that the Spirit of God would speak to us, would minister to us through the word of God, that we would be challenged and rebuked and refreshed. Father, we would see Jesus and we would see him afresh this morning. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, to the Gentiles, is writing his letter to Timothy. and the, Not to Timothy, to the saints at Ephesus and to some of us here at Noble Park this morning. Paul is writing to describe and expound to them the new creation of God. The believers as new creations in Christ and the church as the new community of new creations in Christ gathered together. And Paul is beginning his letter, as he usually does, with an expression of thanksgiving to God that has overflowed. And instead of just a simple thanksgiving and moving on, it's become an extended, overflowing, rolling expression of praise and thanksgiving as he, as he writes. What a marvelous thing that his worship contains some of the deepest, deepest and most richly packed theology of the book. It reminds us that worship must be based on sound doctrine. It's also neat that he gives us all of this rich theology in the beginning of the book, and then he bases all of the way we're supposed to live. The practice is built on that foundation. The foundation of our lives is good, solid, rich doctrine and theology. It's the Word of God we build our lives on. And Paul gives us this beautiful thing that praise flows out of a heart that is filled with understanding of the doctrine of God, the theology of the Bible. He's laying a foundation for what he will say later. If you notice, take your Bibles, just flip over a page to verse of 11 of chapter 2, and he says there, Therefore, remember. That's the first command he's given in the whole book. Is this in chapter 2, verse 11. Doesn't say anything else about what we're supposed to do until he gets there and he says, remember. Reminder. Think back. Remember all these things. And so if you like, we can take all of this 
good, solid, rich theology, good, solid exposition in praise and say, the one thing we need to do as a people of God right now, before we dive into the practice of how we're supposed to live, is remember what God has done. Think on it. Call it to mind. We needed... We need to be reminded constantly of the grace by which we are saved. There's a story told about a football team in America. And over there they play football a little bit differently. They put on pads and helmets and all that kind of stuff. And they stop and start constantly. And after one particular game, a very popular, very successful team had lost their game tragically and very badly. And they all gathered in the locker room on the following Monday morning. And they're all kind of heads down, all a bit sheepish because they'd all just blown it. And the coach walked in and he had a big smile on his face. And he had his hand behind his back and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. And you think, duh, it's a football. We play that all the time. We're always, we know what a football is, coach. But what he was doing was he was reminding them, this is the fundamental. This is what it's all about. And, about. and for a few days, he just went back and he reviewed all of the fundamentals of the game. And he reminded them of the basic way in which they're supposed to play the game of football. And in a sense, as we read through these things and this richly packed, layered sentence of all of what God has done for us, we can do what Paul said in 2 and verse 11 and remember. We can be reminded of the great things that God has done for us. In the passage, in the, the section I want to look at over the next two weeks, I really wanted to get through from verse 6 all the way down to verse number 10. But I just couldn't do it. There's too much in there. There's too much good stuff that I thought, you know what? If I go and preach a very long sermon to get through it all, you're going to forget half of what I said anyway, or more than half. So I'm going to break it down into two neat things. There's four great things, four things that God has graciously done for us in the verses number 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 as well, actually. So there we go. The four things are this. Number one, God graciously redeemed us. God, second of all, graciously forgave us. We're going to look at those two things today. The next two things are this. God graciously made known to us the mystery of His will. That's a great thing. Come next week. You want to know what all of this is all about, what God's purpose is, what God's plan is for all of it He's doing. Come next week. We're going to look at that. And He also gives us... An inheritance, and we'll look at both of those things next Sunday morning. But the first two for today, and these are great things. I really enjoy just getting back into the, what is a football? This is a football. This is our salvation. This is what God has done for us. This is what God has graciously done for us as the people of God. And so the first two things there, God graciously redeemed us and God graciously forgave us. There are four great evidences of God's grace. Notice in the text, verses 6 and 7, he says this, To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now, first, again, we've got to remind ourselves, what's the main idea of the whole sentence? And just to remind you again, the sentence doesn't start there at verse 6. It starts right back at verse 3 and goes all the way down to the end of verse 14. It's one long sentence in the original language. The main idea is this. Worthy of praise is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is to be praised who has blessed us. And He has blessed us by choosing us, by predestining us, by giving us redemption and forgiveness, the knowledge of His will and inheritance and the sealing of the Spirit and so on. Now we want to also grasp the prominence of grace that's in this text in front of us. In verse 6, he says, we are to praise the glory of His grace. In verse 7, we have redemption and forgiveness according to grace. 
In verse 8, grace was lavished on us when he made known to us the mystery of his will. In verse um, grace, sorry, verse 8, he made grace to abound, to overflow, to superabound, to cover us. Now what is grace, you say? Grace is the goodness of God towards the guilty. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we said that mercy is the goodness of God to those who are miserable. It was a desperate situation. But the grace of God is God's goodness given, applied, poured over the guilty. And all of us stand guilty before God. Grace is the unearned, unpurchasable favor and kindness of God. It is God motivated purely by kindness toward us and a desire for us to see his perfections and glory who exercise his goodness in our direction. Unearned, unpurchasable. It's God's kindness. I come in, I say, I've got a gift for you all. And I call Proven up the front. I say, here, Proven, I'm going to give this gift to you. And Proven immediately starts digging in his pockets. And, oh, just a minute, just a minute. I, got, I think I got my wallet. And he starts to pull his wallet out and pushing $50 notes into my hand. I'm tempted to take them. But no, I said, no, no, no. It's a gift. He says, no, no, no. It's okay. I've got enough. And he keeps pushing money into my hand. I said, no, you don't get it. It's a gift. You can't buy it. I'm giving it to you. That's the idea of God's grace. It's something that we cannot purchase. We cannot earn it by good works. You can't earn it by doing all kinds of good things for God or for somebody else. It's simply God's kindness to those who are guilty before Him. God bestowed grace on us. God lavished grace on us. The next thing we must understand is that points one and two are linked together. Redemption and forgiveness are like two sides of the same coin. It's much like faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Redemption and forgiveness are two sides of the same coin. So first there is redemption. Notice he says in verse number 7, In him we have redemption through his blood. To be, first of all, it's in Christ. So redemption is not available outside of Christ. To be in Christ is to be identified with Him. Okay? In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. It is The old has gone, the new has come. In Galatians 2, verse 20, the Bible says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ living in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Belief in Christ, following Christ as his disciple, being a Christian is to identify ourselves with Christ. Now, if you come on Wednesday evenings, Mr. Taylor has taken us through the book of Exodus. And one of the things we're going to get to in the book of Exodus is the scene where the people of Israel... In order to be delivered from the angel of death, they go and they kill a lamb. They take the blood and they dip a a branch of hyssop, which is like a very natural paintbrush. They take that blood and they begin to paint it on the outside of the doorpost and the lintel. The piece that goes across the top. Why? Everybody walking by would see the blood and recognize that these people have identified themselves with a slain lamb, with the blood of a lamb. The angel of death would travel over. He would look down and see the blood and pass over. But that blood painting was a way of identifying themselves with the blood, with the lamb. In our case, we are identifying ourselves with Christ. We baptize believers only on their confession of faith. They publicly, vocally identify themselves with Christ by a confession of faith. We immerse them under the water. Why do we do that? We do it so that we can, they can show everybody that they have died with Christ. They have been buried under the water with Christ. And as we lift them up out of the water again, we're showing everybody that they have been raised to new life in Christ. They're publicly identifying with Christ as they go through the waters of baptism. 
I'll take two seconds to say this. If you haven't been baptized, if you haven't gone through that process where you stand before a whole congregation of people and you with your mouth publicly declare that you believe in Jesus Christ, He is your Savior. I encourage you with all my heart, come and talk to the elders. Come talk to me. We would love to take you through baptism so that you can, with your family and your friends and this church, say, I publicly declare that I belong to Jesus Christ. He is my Savior and my Lord. When Paul says, in Him we have redemption, he's speaking about identification with Christ. We have redemption. There is no redemption outside of that in Christness. I remember walking through, this is years ago, I was in uh, Canada, and we, I worked in an uh, aircraft hangar right on the aircraft uh, taxiing strip. It was a big woodworking shop we had in there, and I had to baptize uh, my two oldest sons the next day. I was walking through that building late at night, and I was working late, as I usually did, and I was thinking about it. And the two words that just hit me like a ton of bricks, that sort of just stopped me in my tracks, in Christ. It's, everything is different if you're in Christ. And Paul is saying to these Ephesians, he's saying to us, listen, it's in Christ. It's only in that context that we have redemption. Well, then what is redemption? Redemption means to buy back. It means to set free. It means to loosen. The word is, I'm going to pronounce a Greek word, so if you're Greek, you're free to laugh. It's apolutrusin. Its core means to loosen away from something. In the first century, it had the idea of a slave being set free. He was loosened from his bonds. Now, I'm an old carpenter, as some of you know. And in, in Australia, when they frame houses, they use this really soft stuff called pine. And you can just about push your finger through it. It's so soft. But in Canada, we use something different called Douglas fir. And Douglas fir is this rich, orangey kind of colored wood. And I would go into old houses. And one of my jobs as an apprentice was I got to do the destruction. And we used to laugh and say, the best part of construction is destruction, when you get to tear something out. And we were armed with sledgehammers and crowbars and pry bars. And we'd go in there, and we would just do the mad thing and knock everything out in our path. And then they would say, now go back, take all those Douglas fir studs and joists and rafters and plates and pull all the nails out and pull all the pieces apart and clean them up and put them aside. Now, when Douglas fir dries out, it, it sort of shrinks a little bit and the iron nails or the steel nails they drive in there, that wood grips onto them with a grip of death. And you had to get in there, and sometimes to get those pieces of wood part, we had to cut big wedges and drive them between the two pieces of wood to pry them apart. And whenever I think of redemption, I think about the fact that I have been pried loose from something. That it's as if God is a great crowbar or a great wedge, and He has pried me loose from something. Of course, the question always comes to mind, what are we pried loose from? The Bible says in Psalm 103 and verse 4 that God redeems our lives from the pit. God pries loose our lives from the pit, from hell, if you like. In Galatians 3 verse 13, the Bible says that Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. We have been pried loose from the curse of the law. To ask the question another way, what are we saved from? One of my favorite stories about R.C. Sproul. Uh, I think some of you may know the name R.C. Sproul. He's a uh, quite a famous Presbyterian theologian in America. And I don't care what theological church background you come from. I've never met anybody that doesn't like R.C. Sproul. He's just one of those likable people. And uh, he's telling the story one day, and I, I first got a hold of what this idea of salvation was really all about. He says he was hurrying to class one day, and he had his briefcase and all his papers, and he was hurrying along through the campus. And a man jumped in front of him, a young man jumped in front of him and said, Sir, are you saved? And R.C. just kind of, you know, he gruff guy, just kind of pushed around him to get going. He was too busy focusing on his next class. And the young man jumped back in front of him again and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? And R.C. spun around, and the only R.C. could do it, he says, Save from what? 
I'm certainly not saved from people bothering me on my way to my work. I'm a systematic theologian. What do you mean am I saved? And he said, I didn't want to tell him I was a systematic theologian because that would only lead to more doubts about my salvation state. He said, but what I wanted to do was to stop with that young man and go through what does it mean to be saved? What are we saved from? And often we think, well, you know, we're saved from hell. That's a true statement. We are. Well, you know, I'm saved from sin, and that's a true statement. We are. But, you know, that's like the smallest fraction of the reality of what we are saved from. We are saved from something so much more and so much greater and so much more powerful than that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are saved from the wrath of God which is to come. If you don't get that, you will never understand salvation. Like the old saying goes, well, there's good news and then there's bad news. Which do you want first? And the bad news is so bad. It's so big, it's so weighty, it's so overwhelming that when you hear the good news, it becomes so much more. And they've done studies to show that young men and young women who do not understand what they are saved from, they struggle with assurance all through their Christian life. So let me tell you this morning, you are saved from the wrath of God which is to come. The Bible says in Isaiah 34 verse 2, For the Lord's indignation, His wrath is against all the nations and His wrath against all their enemies. In Romans 1 verse 18, the Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In Ephesians 2 verse 3, just across the page, you know what he says? He says, we were by nature children of wrath. It means we were left to ourselves. We were destined to go straight for wrath. Who's ever been on a roller coaster ride? Some of you have a few little hands go up. I remember the first time I, actually, one of the only times I went on a roller coaster ride when I was a young man. I got, someone talked me into it. They said, you love it. I said, no, I won't. They said, yes, you will. I was right. They were wrong. I didn't like it at all. I got dragged up this thing. And I remember going up that long thing, and it was this rickety old thing in, in uh, Vancouver at the P&E playground. This thing was so rickety. The paint's all peeling off it, you know. And it was going up, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? And you're looking over, and there's a long way down, long way down. And finally, you get over the top. And that moment, you hear the chicka chicka chick, and the thing stops. And you hear the as the wheels start rolling over the edge. And you just know. It's doom. You're going to die. You're never going to survive going down that thing. And you know what it is? You're in that car, and the car pulls you over, and your back whiplashes back as you're dragged over the top, and down you go. And you know what? You can't get out for anything because you've got that barn here, so you can't get out because you don't want to get out now. It's too late. We were destined for the wrath of God we cannot get out just as surely as I couldn't get out of the car, that roller coaster car, right in the very back car. And we plummeted down that long slope, and my heart came up into my mouth, and everything went funny, and I was just trapped. Listen, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are just as surely destined for the wrath of God as that little roller coaster car was destined to go shooting down that track as fast as it could go. And there is no getting off. Children of wrath means there is no escape from that wrath of God. But notice he says, in, ver- in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, he says, It is Jesus is the one who rescues us, who rescues us from the wrath which is to come. He prizes Luth from the wrath which is to come. Being redeemed in Christ means we're loosed. We're set free from the wrath of God. And you have no idea, if you don't know Christ, just what it means to realize in that moment when you trust Christ, And the guilt is gone. And you have the reassurance of the Holy Spirit in your heart that says, you know God. No longer is there wrath. R.C. Sproul tells another great story. If you have the book, Holiness of God, if you don't have it, get it and read it. It's a great book. 
In the very back of the book, he tells a story. He got, woke up late, late, late one night in Bible college. And he'd been wrestling with all these great Bible truths back in the 50s or 60s. And he went in the middle of the night into the chapel of the university where he was staying. He said he opened the back door of the chapel and it was all dark and quiet inside. As he stepped inside, he said he felt in his soul the absolute terror. You see, he knew in that moment he was in the presence of the living God. And he sank to his knees on the back of the floor. And the terror of God just filled his heart. He began to cry out to God for help. And he said the most amazing thing happened. And I've heard this story so many times. And people tell their story of salvation. That terror gave way and there was a peace that came over his heart that just filled his soul. And he knew what it was to be rescued, to be set free. He was moved from one place to another, from the place of being destined for the wrath of God to the place of being adopted and included as one of the children of God. That's what it means to be redeemed. We have redemption through His blood. The phrase packs into it more than a simple meaning of just blood. Through His blood indicates all that Christ's death included. God in Genesis 2 verse 17 said to Adam, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely... He didn't say you'll die. He said you'll surely die. You will die. Disobedience resulted in death. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 4, the Bible says, The soul that sins shall surely die. In Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through Christ's blood speaks of the death that Christ died. Jesus' death paid the ransom for our sin, for my sin and yours. Jesus' death was the power, the means by which he pried us loose from God's wrath. I think it's one of the most amazing statements of the Bible. To realize we are saved from God by God Himself. He paid the penalty that my sin incurred. But again, don't miss the motive. It's the wrong word, but the driving force behind why God has given us this redemption. In Ephesians 1, verses 6 and 7, God freely bestowed grace on us in the Beloved in whom we have redemption. It is right It is legitimate from the text to say then that the goodness of God poured out on us, the guilty, it overflowed toward us and Christ's death to set us free from the wrath of Almighty God. That's the kindness of God. It was His wrath that we deserved. It was His law that we had broken. It was His standards of holiness that we had not kept. You go up to the those rides, you know, the roller coaster rides and stuff, and you see a little chart there. You must be this tall to ride this ride. You have to achieve this standard in order to get into this place to ride the ride and enjoy all the benefits of that ride. You must be this tall. And you walk up the line. Of course, I was always tall in the little line. But you see these little guys there, and they so badly want to ride the ride, and they're just pushing themselves up and kind of pull their hair up to maybe make just so they're tall enough. And the reality is that our iniquity is our failure to meet the standard of God. And we have failed to meet His standard. We have broken His law. We have violated His commands. We have sinned against Him. What did David say? Against you and you only, O God, have I sinned. And yet God, in grace, grace, kindness, favor toward us that I will deal with my own wrath in the only way possible. I will absorb it by myself. My son will take their place. That's the grace of God. There's something wrong with us when that doesn't move us to tears once in a while. To stop and realize that God's grace has been poured out on me. I deserve nothing but the wrath of God. But he said, I will forgive. 
I will redeem. I will pry you loose. My grasp of justice is so tight it cannot be broken by anything but my own son's blood. That's grace. It's like this. I've been committed a crime. Let's just say it's murder. It's in the first century A.D. I stand before the Roman courts. The Roman governor pronounces me guilty, condemns me to die because I'm not a Roman citizen. I'm just an ordinary Aussie. So he'll die by crucifixion. They take me out. They scourge me to release a flow of blood so that my body will be weakened. They take me all the way down through the streets. All the way through the streets, I have a little sign around my neck. Murderer. Guilty. They take me up to the place called Calvary, Golgotha. There's a wooden bar there. And they put me down and they nail my hands to it. They push my feet up on the wooden post and they nail my feet to the post. And the soldier leans over to pick that cross up and he begins to lift it up. And all of a sudden... A gnarled carpenter's hands reaches over and pushes the cross back down to the ground. And the Son of God takes a pry bar and he pries the nails out of my hands and he pries the nails out of my feet. And he lifts me up and he helps me to walk away. And he turns around and lays back down the cross and says, Go ahead. He took my place. He redeemed me. He pried the nails, if you like, out of my hands that fastened me to the place of absolute wrath and suffering and agony. And he set me free. I often wonder, reading the story about Barabbas, I can relate to Barabbas. I often wonder if Barabbas didn't walk outside the city and walk up the hill and even from a distance stand and look up at the three crosses on the end of the hill. Friend number one and friend number two hanging there, dying, screaming in pain, cursing God, except for one who claimed forgiveness from God, but one in the middle. His words were only kindness and gentleness, whose words gave life and hope to one thief. He looked up and realized, that's my cross. I deserve that. And he pried me free. Brother and sister in Christ, remember. Remember the fact that Jesus set you free. He has redeemed us from death. Listen, we are all guilty of sin. We all know the torturous, corrosive effect of guilt. One of the remarkable differences between the Old Testament system of worship and the New Testament system of worship was this. All the millions and billions of gallons of animal's blood could not cleanse the conscience from guilt. Only Jesus' blood can wash our conscience free. Only Jesus' blood can wash the guilt away. Sin has left a massive debt that we cannot pay for ourselves. We are destined for the wrath of God. We are all under a just sentence of death. But God in staggering grace has pried us loose from His own wrath. God in grace has provided Christ a sinless, spotless sacrifice for our sin to cleanse us of our sin and its guilt. God is worthy to be praised. Amen? God is worthy to be praised, to be exalted and be adored. Why? Because in grace, He gave us what nobody else, not even ourselves, could give us. We all thought Jesus would come and He would set us, set them free from the Roman boot. He would set them free from poverty and, and suffering of all different kinds. Jesus came to give us the one thing that we could not do for ourselves. We could not live without. He gave us He came to give us redemption and to set us free. Second is this. Praise God who graciously forgave us our sin. Second great evidence of God's grace is His forgiveness. Now, if you remember earlier, I said that the two points are like the same, uh, two sides of the same coin. Redemption, forgiveness, together, they kind of go together, they fit together. Now notice in 1 and verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now grammatically, 
Forgiveness stands in what's called an appositive. It means it's a restatement of the same idea. Okay, so a redemption, you can see, read like this. We have redemption, that is, the forgiveness of sins. It restates the same idea. It's a parallel phrase, but they're not exactly the same thing. Redemption, if you like, is the cause, and forgiveness is the effect that flows out from that cause. So, for example, I drive my Honda V-Twin bike 120 kilometers down the highway. I'm caught, again, by a speed camera, right? And uh, I get a little notice in the mail. You have been caught speeding against the highway sign. Please pay the closed $700,000 fine. It seems like they're getting higher and higher these days. And I have incurred a debt. I have acted against the law. I have incurred a debt, and a debt must be paid. I get my money together. I write up the check, or I do the BPAY thing, send it all off. And what happens is they receive the payment for that debt, and then they forgive the debt. They cross it off. They write it off as paid in full. And I'm forgiven. I don't I no longer have to pay that again. If they, they can't send me another letter saying, yeah, we got your $120 or whatever it is. Please pay it again. With, with the debt still here, please pay it again. I had a friend who had a sim. actually happened to him. They sent him over and over again. He kept paying it could prove it, but there was a computer hitch. And they kept sending it back to him again. Now, if if they had just said, you know, Nelson's a nice guy. You know, he was he's doing the work of the Lord. He was in a hurry. We'll just let him off this one time. Is that justice? No, it's not. Not justice at all. In fact, an even greater injustice has just occurred if they let me off. So instead, what we have to realize is the sin, the debt is forgiven. No longer does there stand a claim against us. And what forgiveness means is it's a voluntary release from any further payment of a debt. God says, I forgive the person for their sin. I forgive the debt. No longer is there a death required of us. So redemption delivers us from the wrath of God. It delivers us from sin and from death. And forgiveness, forgiveness says no longer must there be a debt to pay. It's all again freely the grace of God. The term says there, he says, forgiven of the trespasses. Now, the Bible uses three different terms to describe sin. It means, number one, sin is lawlessness or rebellion. Sin is trespass. It has the meaning of crossing the boundary. I said before, iniquity is a failure to achieve the right standard. Sin is rebellion. Trespass means to cross the boundary. Iniquity means a failure to achieve the standard of God's holiness. In 1 and verse 7, the term trespass does not disregard the other terms. It just encapsulates them. It summarizes them. All three of those terms describe a willful, conscious choice. None of these carry an idea of an inadvertent mistake. So when we cross God's boundary, we did it on purpose. We knew what we were doing. It's like a little kid, you know, they go to the... A friend of mine took his kid to a hockey game in Canada. And back in those days, you could let kids run around the rink. It was safe. It wasn't a big problem. It was more of a family atmosphere. Took his little girl by the hand. He went all the way down the, the, the steep bleachers under the, close to the rink where the ice is, where they play hockey. And he said, there's a boundary right here. And he showed the line on the floor. He said, you can play anywhere you want, sweetheart. You can go up and down the stairs. You can go around all the rink. You can go anywhere you want. One of the dads just smiled because he knows the story already, I think. He said, you can do anything you want. You go anywhere you want. And she went, okay, daddy, no problem. He went back and sat down and she got up and she walked over to that stairway. She walked all the way down the stairs to the line her daddy had pointed out. And she got there and she turned around and she looked up at him. Hi, daddy. And her foot went out and over the line. And she just smiled at him. It's a good thing I don't have daughters because I would maybe be forever in trouble because little girls can wrap them here around my finger. She looked at him and she put her foot right across the line on purpose. What are you going to do, Dad? I just broke the rules. 
I know my friend well enough to know what happened following the breaking of the rules. I think she had a warm seat for the rest of the evening. She did it deliberately. We don't achieve God's holiness and we do it deliberately. When we sin against God, it is a rebellion against God. We look at God and say, I don't care. I do it anyway. And you think, what's the difference? What's the big deal? It makes it that much more of an offense. Listen, your sin, you may think it's a little sin and it doesn't matter. But your sin offends God just as surely as if you spat in his face. It's an offense. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that sin is an act against the holiness of God. All three things, sin, iniquity, and trespass, are treachery against God and against the image of God in which we were created and which we are expected to portray. Sin, trespass, and iniquity are deliberate actions for which God must punish and execute His justice and His judgment. God does not forgive sin indiscriminately. God is only able to forgive sin where justice has been met. Why did God not simply, magnanimously, just decide, you know what, let's just write it off. What's the big deal? Because the Bible makes it absolutely clear in Romans 3 and verse 26 that God is both just, He's righteous, He's a just God, and He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It, uh, if he were to disregard his justice, he would be violating his own character. He would also be violating his own word. The Bible says, Romans 17, verse 5, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. He does not, he cannot, he will not just simply forgive sin because you're a nice person. Because he's a great God. Is there any greater than God? No, there's not. Is there any more kind than God? No, there's not. Is there any more gracious? No. But God cannot simply forgive sin indiscriminately just because you're a nice person. He must deal with sin according to justice, which is why. Which is why his son had to die. His son had to meet the full requirement of God's holiness and righteousness. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 verse 11, one of my favorite verses, but it only works in the King James. It says this, He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Remember the scene where Jesus is on the cross and he's on his hands and nails and his hands and feet, nails and his hands and feet. He's about to die. And the Bible says he pushed down, or the Bible says he shouted. The only way he could shout is to push down the hands and nails, the nails of his hands and feet. He got a big lung full of air, and he said, To Telestai, it's finished. It's done. It's complete. It's fully done. And the Father in heaven looking down said, Satisfied. It is enough. The suffering that Jesus has endured and experienced is enough to pay all the penalty that sin has incurred. Your debts. Your sin has incurred a great penalty and Jesus has paid it all. God in grace provided Christ as the payment for sin. God in Christ satisfied the demands of God's justice. God in grace, magnificent grace, forgave us the debt, never again to require payment. God in Christ takes away our sin so we may never again rise to condemn us. The Bible says in Psalm 103, it's the Lord, the Lord alone, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He didn't just forgive you. It's like the guy that went rescued a man drowning, you know? Guys in the water, He's drowning, maybe Pacific Northwest where the water's freezing cold. And the guy went and got him and he put him the, the, the life preserver thing around him with a rope on it, you know. And he lifted him up whoosh, out of the water. And the guy's hanging there, dripping. He's saved. He doesn't leave him hanging out there in the middle of the water on the side of the boat and drive the boat back into shore with the guy dripping and hanging outside the boat. He brings him into the boat. He puts a cloak around him. He warms him up. He gives him a cup of hot tea. He does everything he can to help this man. 
He crowns him with loving kindness and compassion. He doesn't just forgive us and leave us to ourselves. He brings us in. He clothes us with kindness. We're welcomed into a family. But not only that, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. God will never, ever require you to answer those charges again. It is more evidence, more evidence of the grace and the kindness of God. The accounting department in heaven did not make a mistake. They will not come back to you and say, sorry, we got... 90% 90% of your sins committed, but there's still 10% left to take care of. So, no, never, never. Well, what are the results of all this? Listen, the work of Christ is so complete and so perfect for us in our place. The grace of God is so immense and so far-reaching. Here's how Paul describes the result of the love we've experienced of God. Take your Bibles and flip over. Romans chapter 8. We're going to just dive out of Ephesians for a moment and enjoy some great things that God has done for us in Christ. Romans 8.31 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice a couple of these things. You've got to look at them. They're so rich. Verse 31, God who was once against us is now for us. Because of the immense grace of God poured out because of God's justice and met and satisfied in God. He who once was once our great enemy because of our rebellion, he is now gone from our enemy to being for us. He is now our defender, our stronghold. He who once was a source of unmeasured wrath against us because of sin, he is now for us with all the resources of heaven's might. Yeah, to thrill your soul. He who was once against us is now for us. God will also give us all things with Christ. You remember the prodigal son? Comes home. His dad, I love his dad. He's up on the front porch of the house. If they had binoculars, I'm sure he would have had a binoculars. He's just scanning, watching for the son to come back. And finally, away off in the distance, he sees a little boy walking along, young man, whatever. And he's in rags. He looks way skinnier than he used to be. His hair is long and unkempt. No shoes, no ring, no robe. And he comes towards the house, a straggled, bedraggled young man. And dad jumps off the porch and his father ran to meet him. And the son looking up can see his father coming from a long way off and dad's running, you know. And he gets close, and the young man hangs his head in shame. He says, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me and make me like one of your hired servants. And I can almost see him. His head is down. And the father's almost not even listening. He says, Quick, bring a robe. Put it on him. Bring a ring. Put on his fingers. Bring shows on his feet. Every one of those symbols is designed to portray sonship. 
The ring was a mark that he belonged to the Father. The robe was a picture of his sonship with the Father. The sandals on his feet was a picture. He was not a servant. He was a son. He says, take the calf, kill it, get the drink, bring it. Let's party. Let's have eat, drink, and be merry. Because my son, who was once alive, then was dead, now is alive again forever. He who once was lost is now found. And the picture is here in Paul's words. He who, in verse number 32... He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Redemption and forgiveness isn't just being brought back to no sin. It's being brought back and brought into the family of God. We enjoy all the wealth of the treasures of God's richness as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's given us everything to go with it. That's grace, is it not? That staggering grace of God. Don't know about you, but I would have been just so happy to be in somewhere, live in the stables, eat whatever I could find to be part of the kingdom. But no, our Father in heaven has brought us in and given us all things beside. What a magnificent grace we have experienced. Amen. Who will bring a charge? Nobody will ever stand in the courts of heaven and put a long finger in your face and say, that's the one. He did it. He committed the crime. That's him. Because the Bible says that God justifies. God declares us right in his sight. Nobody will bring a charge against you or me. Who can condemn us? Christ died. His death was enough. Who will separate us? Nobody. No thing can separate us. We have experienced the love of Christ and we can never be pried loose from it. Just as we were pried loose from the wrath of God, never to be reattached, so we have been fastened to the love of Christ in Christ and we can never be separated from it ever again. That's grace, folks. That's grace. What do we do with all this? It's nice to remember it. We must remember it. We should remember it. It's nice and we should. We must praise God with it. But there's something else here that I think we need to stop and take a moment to consider, even though our time is fast going. If God can accomplish such a redemption and such a great forgiveness on our behalf, then surely nothing is too difficult for Him. Listen, Christian. I don't know what you're struggling with. But I spent enough time with the people of God to know that most of us are struggling with something. Whether it's doubt, whether it's discouragement, whether it's disillusionment. I meet enough young people my own age and younger who are disillusioned with the church. Disillusioned with... Christianity. I mean, enough people who are discouraged and downcast for what seems like endless ages of praying and praying and praying, and God doesn't seem to be hearing and God doesn't seem to be answering. Whatever situation you are in, trust God with it. God who has accomplished such a great redemption, such a great salvation, can be trusted with anything that you are struggling with. He is worthy to be praised. He is also worthy to be trusted. Trust God with your health situation. Some of you have some difficult health situations. Trust God. He knows what He is about. And He who dealt with your greatest problem can deal with that. Trust God with your marriage and your family, your children, or your parents. Trust God who is worthy to be praised with every part of your life. He dealt with the single greatest problem, his own wrath. Any other problem that we face is child's play to God. There's something else I want to share. And it's something I've wrestled with all week. Because there's a part of me that wants to just leave this alone and don't go there. One of the things I struggle with, I think maybe you're like me. I hope I'm not the only one. The Bible says that to whom much is given, much will be required. 
What struck me as I read through this and studied this and chewed over all week was the fact that we have been forgiven. And we have experienced the riches of God's grace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a very easy thing that happens with us is we see forgiveness for us and we have received much forgiveness. I'm the worst sinner in the room. I know how much God has forgiven me for. Why is it, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are so slow to forgive one another? Why is it that we, who have received immense grace from God, are so slow to exercise and share that grace with each other? He doesn't live up to my standards. She doesn't do it the way I think she should do it. You know, if I was her, I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, what's wrong with these people? Why can't they just read their Bibles and figure it out? What? Hey, you know what? God had grace with you, and God had grace with me that was boundless and immeasurable. Why are we so slow, brothers and sisters, to have grace with one another? So quick to condemn. They don't meet up with my theological preferences and lines and standards, so I'll cut them down. I noticed, one of the things I noticed coming from American sort of influence background in Canada, American television, is the ability that most American, I should say most universal TV programs, especially comedy ones, the ability of the spoken word to slice and dice and cut people down, sarcasm and bitter criticism, it's just, it's used as humor now. And we've bought into it, at least I know I have. And what really challenged my heart throughout this week, thinking about how much I have been forgiven for, is how slow I am to forgive those who have wronged me how much grace I have received, and yet how slow I am to to extend that grace to others. And I plead with you this morning, I don't know where you're at in your Christian life, but whatever you're struggling with, let me ask you this one question. How quick are you to forgive those that sin against you? And how quick are you to extend grace to those that have hurt you, have wronged you, maybe are just plain different to you. Just a question. I'm just going to throw it out there. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ. Maybe deep down that inner place in your heart, you're powerfully aware that Jesus is not your Savior. You do not know what it is to be forgiven of sin. You don't know what it is to be free of guilt. You know that you have sinned and failed to glorify God. You know that God's wrath is coming for you. And like that roller coaster illusion, it's climbing higher and higher and higher. And the moment when you will step out of time and into eternity into the presence of God and face the wrath of God is getting closer as every day passes. You know like I did when I was 13 years of age and I heard the gospel and I understood it. I got it. Jesus suffered and died for me, but my, where I was at, I had not trusted him. I had not claimed him as my savior. I stood under the wrath of God and I knew it. I invite you this morning. In fact, I plead with you with all my heart, with everything I can do as a preacher, I plead with you, come and see Jesus. See Jesus in his suffering. See Jesus brutally flogged, receiving stripes by which you're healed, I'm healed. See Jesus savagely pierced for your transgressions and mine. See him. See him swallowing the very last drop of God's wrath that was designed for you and for me. See Jesus in the glory of his death. It's glorious because it's powerful. Jesus' death defeated death itself. Jesus' death broke the power of sin. Come and see Jesus in the glory of that moment when the tomb cracked open and he stepped out alive. 
rising from the tomb, declaring that he is the Son of God with power to give life, to save. See Jesus purchasing your redemption and mine through his blood. See and hear with the eyes of faith. See and hear the Father's shout from the heights of heaven. I have seen the suffering of my son's soul, and it is enough. enough. His death is enough to pay the penalty for every sin ever committed by every human that ever lived. It's sufficient. But it's only effective when we trust him and cry out to him for salvation. Listen, God is worthy to be praised. He's also worthy to be trusted. Trust in God and receive, believe the message of the gospel. I could stay here for hours, just keep going over and over and over it, because to me it's so rich. Listen, I'm calling you this morning. Trust God. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin and cry out to God and follow Him with all your heart. Trust God and know in your heart and mind His promise. We read it before. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? What an immense grace we have, beloved. He redeemed us. He pried us loose. He redeemed us through his blood. He redeemed those of us who are in Christ, who have identified ourselves with Christ. He has redeemed us as an overflow of grace. He's forgiven our trespasses. No longer will we have to pay that debt. He's forgiven us any further debt payment. He's forgiven and removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. He has forgiven us based on on His grace. What a God we have. Amen.